Hi, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, and I'm your host for the Wellness Edit with Holland and Barrett. In this episode, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by leading podcaster and former beauty journalist Emma Guns. She is an experienced beauty, health and lifestyle writer. She's a presenter, she's a brand consultant, and she is a podcast host who has been tremendously successful. The Emma Gunn Show has charted in the top 10 on iTunes and the Arts Chart, and she's been featured in Stylist, Metro, Cosmo, Get the Gloss, and many other publications. But what's so impressive about Emma is not what you see on paper. Emma is truly passionate about helping other people And that passion shines through on her podcast where she goes deep with many of her guests talking about failure, talking about depression, talking about the beauty industry and talking about societal expectations and so much more. I really enjoyed my chat today with Emma. She was very raw, very open and very honest. And some of the insights that she shared, I think, are really helpful for all of us. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what you think. Emma, hello. Hi, Gemma. How are you? I am really well, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by you today. It's always so nice to see your face, but it's always so weird that it's always on a computer. <laughs> we still haven't done in real life yet, but it's going to happen. It will. It definitely will. And I promise you, I am a real person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you also have a perfectly symmetrical face. So at, at times I have thought that you are AI, <laughs> but I'm convinced now that you are a real human. Oh, well, that's good to know. It's funny, actually, just before we we pressed record I was thinking we were trying to sort out all these um technical bits which is what I think is so amazing I know this is going to sound silly but one of the amazing things I think about you setting up your own podcast is just trying to sort out all the technical parts of the microphone and the different recordings and how you're going to look on the screen you know I was saying that my face wasn't actually symmetrical so it's nice that you think it is (laughs) (laughs) no it looks lovely and symmetrical good (laughs) so yeah as I said before you know I'm really excited because for those of you who don't know that much about Emma's work she was beauty editor okay magazine for 10 years and she's interviewed so many different industry experts, fashion designers, celebrities. It's been quite a journey, hasn't it, Emma? It really has. And I was somewhat thrown in the deep end because I really wanted a job on a glossy magazine. I really, really wanted it. And I got one and it sort of all happened very quickly. And I went from a local newspaper doing, you know, going and reporting on the local church fate. <laughs> And then honestly, a couple of weeks later, having a desk at OK Magazine and going to parties at five star hotels and seeing people like Elton John and just it was a real um, it was a real it was such a big shift. Yeah. But I remember the editor when she gave me the job saying this is going to be a very steep learning curve but we think you can handle it. And now when I look back, boy, was it steep, but I loved every second of it. Yeah, it sounds like a really strange kind of juxtaposition to what you were used to before. Mm. Was there any kind of standout moments where you just thought, I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe I'm doing this. Oh, 100%. So the first, I started on March the 31st, 2003 on OK Magazine. And I know this because that's Ewan McGregor's birthday. (laughs) And (laughs) who is, you know, obviously someone that you, you chatted with and (laughs) <laughs> well, at university, my my friends and I that I lived with, we used to have a calendar on the wall and we'd put, we would put our birthdays in, but we would also put our favourite celebrities' birthdays in. <laughs> so I just, it always, always stuck in my mind. And within a few weeks, what was it, April, May, yeah, June, it was Elton John's White Tie and Tiara party. 
And a couple of days before, my editor said, look, can you come? You have to stand on the door and it's not a door, obviously. It's like this massive reception area, but you have to get everybody's name and make sure they get pictured. Do you want to come along? And I didn't have anything to wear. So I bought a £10 dress and it didn't fit properly. You could see my bra straps. Like it was, I was, I mean, I was the most basic person on the door, but there was a moment where Barry Manilow and Simon Cowell were just chatting, like saying, you never call, you never fax, you never. And I do remember at that moment thinking it is like being in Madame Tussauds and everyone is alive. And <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth Hurley's walking through, Hugh Grant's walking through, and then you're, you're seeing royalty having a bit of a dance. And it was very bizarre, but um, it was that weird thing of kind of having a dream and thinking, I think this is what it's going to look like. And then by hook or by crook getting there and then just thinking, oh, wow, okay, this is actually it. So that was such a, a big moment, yeah. <laughs> I love how you said it was like being in Madame Tussauds. I can totally relate to that. Mm. This is a kind of a interesting question to lead on from that then. Was it what you thought it was going to be? Oh, that is a good question. No. No, it wasn't. Because if I'm being honest, I thought that it was going to be like it was in the films. So you and I are of a similar age. When we were growing up, the majority of female protagonists in films were journalists or worked on magazines. And it was made to look, I mean, trust me, I watched How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days the other day and I thought you would have been fired on day two if, you, if I'd been your editor because you're literally doing nothing. <laughs> um, apart from swanning around making Matthew McConaughey's life hell. But I didn't anticipate it being as much work as it was, meaning there's so much to know. It's like um, when you go for a job in journalism, for example, a lot of people will reference your contacts book. So you're building contacts the whole time. Plus, you're having to go out to things and navigate a whole new world. Like I said, one week I'm going to a church fete. The next week I was I remember my first week on the magazine, I was invited to Claridge's for breakfast by a big beauty brand. And I thought, well, breakfast, well, that's before work. So I said, sure, I'll meet you there at 8am. And then I sat down and the PR said, what would you like? And I hadn't been to Claridge's before or, or a hotel of that calibre before. So I nervously look at the menu and I order the continental breakfast and she orders a plate and a fruit salad. And then she gets this tiny bowl and I get, you know, and a family's worth of breakfast that I then probably eat the entire thing So I'm so embarrassed. So it was all of these sort of weird and wonderful things. But then I think as well, things like interviewing people and learning the dynamics and maybe managing shoots where people aren't 100% happy or making sure you get the job done. I think it can look like a lot of fun, but when you have a lot of money that's gone into renting a location, hiring people, there is a job to be done. And I don't think I really fully understand, understood the bottom line. And actually, I think one of the things that fascinated me the most about it was understanding the business side of things mm. as much as all the fighting, because it was fun. I'm not going to suggest it wasn't. No, I mean, as you say, there, there are all sorts of sides to every kind of job. And, you know, in my, my job, I absolutely love, I would never choose anything else. I love being a family doctor. I love all the things I can do uh, to help my patients. But you know, there's all of the documents and the prescriptions and the letters and the meetings and all the things that I mm. don't really enjoy as much, but it all kind of makes the job, doesn't it? 
Mm, yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? There's lots of different layers and yeah. you can have an idea of what a profession or a job looks like, but it's all those layers that you learn and discover and ultimately you uh, keeps you in it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think probably now we've been talking about your job in beauty, it's probably a good time to talk about beauty stuff at, at this point. Mm. I think I'd be really interested to hear your opinion because you've had so many products sent to you over the years. You've had so many different um, types of uh, brand that have contacted you. What are your views on things like natural and organic beauty? Because this is, I find quite an interesting, but somewhat confusing topic, maybe quite tricky to kind of get my head around. Mm -hmm. And even sort of figuring out how to define it, I don't think is necessarily straightforward. But you know, in your experience, what, what, what are your thoughts on labeling things as, you know, natural and organic and, and, you know, is it better? I asked two people who I trust implicitly. One is the forensic beauty journalist, Claire Coleman, who is very scientific in her approach to beauty writing and is an excellent journalist. And the other one is a cosmetic scientist, Sam Farmer. And I just said, look, I, I know how I feel, but I don't, I want to come at it from a perspective of like, what, what is your take on it? What's the real thing? And they both essentially came back and came back with this idea of it's so undefined. Mm. So this idea of organic is what it depends what the brand means by that. So if you want to, you have to then go to the brand website and understand what their definition of organic is, because their definition of organic might be slightly different from somebody else's. Mm. It's very interesting because well, my assumption would be that it meant that no pesticides were used in any of the production of any of the materials. That's what I would assume it to mean. Interestingly, I studied organic chemistry <laughs> when I was doing my A-levels. And believe you me, it was nothing to do with beauty creams. It was, it was pretty intense. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, so when, you, when you come across brands that say these kinds of things, I mean, I guess, I guess there's a general agreement that future beauty ideally would be sustainable but what does that even mean well this is another thing i mean i'm getting messages every single day from brands and this is the thing it's not about brands making a change because they've sat in the boardroom and thought although some brands have but the majority haven't thought oh my goodness our production might actually be harming the planet let's make changes they're making changes because the consumer wants it the consumer's reading other things and but then you look at some of the things that are being done oh, we've changed our packaging or this component is different. But it's such a marginal, small change that it's not making the difference the consumer might think. And this is where it's so it gets so muddy. And then there are brands like the New Zealand-based brand Emma Lewisham, who recently came to the UK, who have spent thousands on looking into how to have a carbon negative footprint when you're creating product and into packaging and what have you. And in an ideal world, what I understood when I was reading their report was in an ideal world, every beauty brand would use the same product packaging. Yeah. But you can't because that where do, where do marketing, like we're branding, the whole thing just disappears. But if we wanted it to be sustainable everybody would use the same packaging which we know could be recycled it would make things very simple at recycling centers and everything would be a bit more uh, everything would be better and sustainability within beauty would be achievable and what they did is they've actually shared their ip so they've spent all this money researching it and they've shared their ips and said to other brands here have this because there's no point us doing all this research and finding all of this out and only using it ourselves it only benefits everyone if they share it but can you imagine walking into a supermarket or into a shop and everything having the same packaging? That just reminds me of a dystopian 
future you know the kind of what you know those um movies or uh videos where you see people going into supermarkets and everything's just the same <laughs> like that that seems hideous yes i suppose it does but do you, so do you mean i thought you meant just like the shape of the packaging you mean the actual design and everything would have to be no 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 i mean they could do whatever they like with the frontage <laughs> and put their branding on it but i just mean yes yeah. if you were to go and buy a 500 ml bottle of shampoo everybody would use the same bottle the same cap the same mm. dispense, whatever they could then do whatever they wanted to the front of it i'm talking in broad strokes having read through their manifesto as it were and it just seems well that would be the way then wouldn't it that's how you simplify it it's just if everybody uses the same stuff yeah and I guess in a way not only would it seem slightly dystopian which I hadn't really thought of before you mentioned it but also I guess it would make them feel less special you wouldn't want to spend as much on a product because you think oh it's the same as everybody else's people like to feel special don't they well there was another thing I was at dinner with a brand the other day and they use cellophane over their product packaging and one of the journalists at the table said can you just stop doing that but that is a perception of luxury mm. so we have to change the perception of luxury before we can make changes like that because what they say is we can't ship something in a massive container across the sea from china without that packaging on and deliver it to you because it might look like a second when it's on the shelf and that might make you think a i don't want it or b you might not think it's worth the price that's on it yeah so we have to change people's perception of luxury before we can make those sorts of changes so it's it's all really complicated but generally, I think when it comes to things like sustainability, organic, natural and clean, for me, they sit in this sort of very muddy area that's completely undefined. You can say you're being sustainable and green. And actually, when you interrogate it, not everybody's being as it's not the claim maybe they're suggesting. There's a lot of implication and suggestion, which I find really it annoys me because I think we should be doing right by consumers and they sh we should be steering them towards spending their money wisely and well. People work hard for their money and I dislike anything that makes me feel as though that's somehow being exploited. Yeah, yeah, it's a very good point. And I guess that's, I guess that's what you'd call greenwashing, right? It's the idea mm. of saying that something is a certain thing to make people think it's better and buy it because they think, oh, this is going to be better for the environment or this is going to be uh, more sustainable or this is cleaner for my body. I'm not going to harm myself if I use this product. Mm. Yeah. Well, I guess with that in mind, would you have any kind of go-tos that you think people should watch out for that are good at things that you think, oh, well, actually that's a great ingredient or that way of doing things is, is what you could look for in a brand? I think the first thing to think before you go shopping and spending your money is looking at your skin and thinking about what you need. And I think there are generally two schools of thought. It's not as, as blunt as this, but this is kind of a good this has always served me quite well. People tend to fall in one or other of these camps. There are the people who really enjoy the ceremony and the pampering of beauty, who won't think twice about doing a seven-step Korean skincare routine, who love essences, who enjoy oils, who really, really love facial massage, but who make a real ceremony of it in the evening. And those products tend to, for the most part, work mainly on hydration so you are essentially looking after and keeping the skin that you have in the condition that it's in then on the other side of things you will have the person who is using active ingredients because they're trying to slow down some of the aging function of the skin they are wanting to see an improvement 
they are basically using active ingredients and there's less pleasure you uh, in using those things they are it's a much more functional beauty routine and regime there's far less pleasure to be had in it those are the two camps but broadly speaking if somebody said to me what are the ingredients i should be using i will say retinol it's a gold standard it's a vitamin a derivative and it is known to make uh, a difference to the skin i don't know as if it it's often in products to tackle pigmentation but i don't know as if it has as many strengths when it comes to that used in the sort of uh, not over-the-counter strengths but i i use an antioxidant every single day It's the first thing I put on my skin when I come out of the shower and my face is clean. And then hyaluronic acid is an absolute non-negotiable for me. I absolutely adore it. And so those are the three. I also really enjoy azelaic acid. And I personally use uh, tretinoin at night, uh, which is prescription. But that is not a sexy skincare routine. It is not a regime that... Uh, it looks particularly pampering. It's very functional. It's put a bit of serum in, pat it into my skin, wait, hyaluronic acid, moisturizer, SPF. And please, if I talk about anything, any skincare ingredient, SPF is an essential. I wear factor 30 or 50 every single day, non-negotiable. Well, well, actually, you know, that's a really useful insight because you're right. I think people do sometimes use uh, skincare as a part of a pampering and that's great. And other people want to use it for specific results, whether it's acne, mm-hmm. whether it's anti-aging, whether it's dry skin. So I guess if you're looking for broad strokes, like you say, retinol is a good ingredient, vitamin C, SPF and hyaluronic acid if you want some plumping or some sort of hi- extra hydration. Hydration, but always always put something over the top. So with hyaluronic acid, you would be putting your moisturiser over the top of it because hyaluronic acid needs to be sealed in. Mm. But I started using retinol just before my 40th birthday. And of all of the things I wish I had done, I wish I'd started using it when I was 30. Mm. Okay. It's such a good ingredient. It's the thing I say to people, if I meet anybody, I'm like, have you started using retinol yet? No, start now. (laughs) Um, Because one of the things is, and it sounds like such a, a pleasure to be in this position, but I was on a magazine for a long time where I was sent pretty much everything. And I also went to lots of different launches and read lots of different press releases. And I will be very honest, and I've spoken about this on the podcast, that was not an education in skincare. That was an education in marketing. Yeah. And because I didn't have a basic knowledge of skincare or of skincare ingredients, my what I would pick out about things, I was saying things, not even realising that they contradicted each other. Right. Like I would give advice about things and then because I think you need a basic understanding of skin function or ingredients to be honest. And so when people start talking about marshmallow in skincare what they sort of talk about ingredients that you're not going to put on your you're not going to find a, a doctor or a chemist saying yeah this really works in your skin. They try to claim that it's a natural alternative to mm. then I think you need to have the knowledge of what the alternative what they're saying it's an alternative to, you need to know what that is and how that works so that you can interrogate whether the natural alternative is any good. So for a long time, I just regurgitated press releases. And I remember I was a guest presenter on QVC for a few years and Alison Young, who's the doyen of beauty over there, I remember chatting to her and saying, I feel really bad. I never intended to give bad beauty advice, but I realised that I did. I realised that I was because marketing claims are not fact Mm, a lot of the time and so I would say things to people with the best of intentions I hasten to add 
and then a little while later think, oh, I think I might have... I think I might have been wrong there. So that's why I'm quite hardcore, maybe. That's why I'm a little bit more stern with my advice now and sort of don't, because I've tried to do my due diligence and get my facts straight. And that means talking to cosmetic scientists and the people who work with skin and work in the lab. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think that's a really important point to take home for people is especially in the modern world now of social media, essentially what we have is... (laughs) thousands of beauty editors, <laughs> people who uh, put information out there based on what they have been told, based on press releases, based on what they think works for them. And they talk with such authority and mm-hmm. they don't mean harm often, but ultimately if they haven't got a background in skin science, then it's going to be hard for them to be able to give people advice that they can really trust. There's a lot, I mean, there's a lot to be said for anecdotal experience of a product. Like if I, if I've used something and I've seen a really wonderful result, I will often passionately share that. But I think when you have a platform, you have a duty of care to the people who follow you. Mm. And if I'm recommending something, it can't just be for me. You've got to think about, okay, what about the person who's got the complete opposite skin type to me? I'm at the moment I'm trialing a foundation and I'm loving it but I have to think about okay what about I don't have problem skin how will this be for people with problem skin I don't have any problem color matching because I am olive skinned but I'm fair olive skinned will this be inclusive it's really important that I tick off all of those boxes because I'm not talking to me I'm talking to somebody who needs that information and I don't know who that person is so I have to cater for everybody and I I know you're the same you're so good with all of your advice and you're so thoughtful and methodical that you have to think about everybody Mm. and make sure you you're speaking to everybody not just one person yeah it's true but it it is a hard job (laughs) because you want to be able to do it as to the best of your ability and make it something that people can actually use um and feel as though they've had some advice that's actually based on a little bit of thought and due process. So yeah, it it is difficult. And I'm glad you're out there doing that for people. And I think moving on now, I suppose, a little bit to what happened next for you, because obviously now with your podcast, you also get to have some amazing conversations, insights with, through all sorts of different people over the years. And you know, the podcast has got really successful so what what led you to decide to start it back in 2016? Failure. <laughs> truthfully. Failure. <laughs> failure. Truth, it, honestly and truthfully, it was failure. I left OK Magazine in 2012 and Q four years of kind of treading water, but not making any money. And this industry is a lovely industry to be in when I was on uh, OK Magazine and I've already said breakfast at Claridge's going to Elton John's house like there are a lot of really pleasant trappings that come with it and it was a big jolt down to earth actually when I left even though I was still in the industry it was in a sort of different capacity it was like you know you're not on the penthouse suite anymore you're still in a nice room but you're not in the penthouse suite anymore (laughs) and I was trying quite hard I, and I thought maybe I wanted to become a beauty director on a magazine and that had always been my goal actually was to be a beauty director on one of the monthly glossies and I just wasn't having any luck. I was doing consultancy for brands and I was coming up with lots of ideas but just nothing was sticking and I was getting very frustrated because I'd pitch articles to 
magazines and I would think, yeah, I, I would read this. And I just wasn't getting commissioned. And there's a real knack and a real skill to writing a good pitch. And I, I just didn't have that magic dust. And I, I'm, I'm not too proud to say I didn't, I didn't have that magic dust. I couldn't sell a feature. And yet I thought, okay, well, they don't want it. But I still think this is a conversation. Whenever I talk to my friends who aren't just telling me what I want to hear, they're saying they would read it. And then I was just, to be honest, I was not in the happiest place in my life at all. And it just felt like I constantly kept falling over and having to pick myself up again. And I started listening to podcasts in about, I would say, 2012, 2013. And it started off with me listening to ones about film because I love my film. And then I discovered people like Tim Ferriss and I discovered other people who just, Lewis Howes, for example, and all these people who would have these incredible guests on and they would talk about their area of expertise. They would, they were very honest and self-deprecating about failure. And I found it really comforting to know that really successful people who I looked up to had also had challenges because I think when you're going through a series of just feeling that you're constantly hitting the deck and having to dust yourself off again, it can feel as though it's only happening to you. Yeah. And so coupled with the fact that I knew I had some features I wanted to write and I knew I had some things I wanted to say and not feeling like I could find anywhere that would let me do that, I thought, right, I'm going to start a podcast. But it was ridiculous because I really had run out of money I had no idea how to monetize a podcast. So I didn't even do it in the end to start to to make money. I just did it because I thought I really need to put these conversations out there. And one of the great things about working in beauty is you get to chat to brand owners all the time. And there is no blueprint for success when it comes to creating a beauty brand. And so over the years, I had spent loads of time talking to brand owners about their story but when it had come to writing about them or their product it had been a couple of lines but mostly about the product and so originally the show started to kind of deconstruct the success of these incredible beauty brands that always go through real challenges can you imagine going to a bank and asking for a loan to start a business and you're like it's it's about nice smelling creams or (laughs) it's for a fake tan it's it's not the same as going and saying uh, you know I've got a property business or something it's very different there are challenges that go hand in hand with that so those were the conversations that I put on first but it was very much because I was just I need somebody to tell me how I can get out of this rut of failing all the time Wow. That, so that's how the podcast started and it really did evolve. And as I opened up on the show about like mental health and what have you, I then obviously got more guests on who would speak openly about that. It's so holistic, isn't it? Like you've been on the show and you're always so brilliant. And it's even though it might not be, we might do a show about nutrition, we might, might do a, food about, a show about food. Actually, it all plays into the central theme of Let's get really good people on who know what they're talking about, who, if you follow their advice, you're going to be in safe hands. And actually, it might steer you towards feeling better. Mm. That is the goal of every single episode. So, yeah, I'm, I'm so pleased that you've been on and I'm so pleased that you said such nice things about it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'm very pleased to have been on myself. So do check it out, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I have been on, I think, a couple of episodes and obviously I'll be happy to come back anytime, but because your podcast is truly remarkable and I can tell from your demeanor, from the guests, from the questions that you ask, that this is something you're really passionate about. And I didn't realize the the backstory was essentially you were sick of failing and you wanted to do something that you didn't 
think that you would fail at, but actually it probably wasn't even that. It was the fact that you are passionate about beauty. You've been in that industry for years. You're passionate about sharing stories and helping people. And that is the way that you are able to actually do that through that medium at that time. And you know, it has become truly successful. And my belief around that is the reason that it's so successful. Yes, I guess timing has something to do with it. Consistency has something to do with it. But also it's the fact that this is something that you truly care about. You're not doing it for anyone else. You're not doing it because anyone else told you that it would be a good way of being successful. You're doing it because you care. Yeah, it's a good point. And anyone's listening to this and thinking, oh, yeah, that's it, it's that's not easy. And I don't think I realised that I'd always done things for other people. I'd always worked for other people. And I still have a really big problem. If I need to make a big decision, I still look for somebody to get permission from. Mm. Still. So when I started the podcast, actually, I would I was looking for somebody to give me permission. And in the end, because I didn't want to say to anyone, I, I started off in secret, which sounds really bizarre, doesn't it? <laughs> no. I didn't, tell any, I didn't tell anyone. And I the first day I published it, I put three episodes live at the same time. And I turned off my router and turned all my lights off. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what I was thinking. It's a great strategy, Emma. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Bury your head in the sand. Everything will be all right. But um, I did. I, I, it was one of those things where I, it was a re- very rare occasion where I hadn't asked permission from anyone to do it. And yet this I've talked about on the podcast, like my own issues, like I, not long after I started the podcast, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and I've worked really hard on those, but there are some self-esteem issues, which is why I often have a lot of psychologists on the show to kind of unpick that. Cause I think a lot of people struggle with those issues, but that's something that the podcast definitely was something I was afraid to start because I hadn't asked anybody if I should. I think that's a really interesting point. And I think that a lot of women actually have this in their psyche. My husband was talking to me about this the other day, talking about people who apply for jobs. He said there was some statistic, I'm not going to get it right because I don't recall it off the top of my head, but he was telling me that most of the time there was this study done where a man will apply for a job and uh, he'll see all of the different reasons why, you know, you should apply A, B, C, D, E, or that these are all the qualifications you should have. This is the experience you should have. And they will apply for a job if they've got maybe half of it, or maybe just over half of it. Whereas women tend to apply for a job if they can tick every single box. And even then they're not quite sure if they're good enough to get it. I read the exact same thing. Yeah. Men will look at it and go, yeah, I reckon I could do that. Women will say, Ooh, I'm not so good at that. Yeah. I totally, totally agree with you. Hmm. Well, let's hope that this kind of chat might help women to feel a little bit more emboldened. They can start their own podcast if they, if they want to, if it's something they're passionate about and they, you know, we don't need to ask permission from anybody. We don't need to get that validation from outside of ourselves. If we know something in our heart, um, then that should be good enough, right? Well, and to that point, I work predominantly when I go out to uh, work events, they are, a lot of them are beauty events and I am surrounded constantly by female entrepreneurs in the beauty industry who started with an idea like Caroline Hirons who started with a blog and is now a whole industry. So there's evidence all around you if you look for it that women in business and women can do their own thing and a side hustle that's something that you love doing does not delegitimize that thing just because it's not traditional business model. I think everybody should go for it, absolutely everybody. Yeah. 
And I think maybe we could take a little trip down memory lane for you, talking about your podcast. Are there any kind of really surprising things that you've learned from having talked to so many people on there? Something that you might have learned from an interviewee that you really didn't know or that kind of shifted your own paradigm of thinking? I really wish I could say one thing, but I do think the podcast changes me constantly. Mm. And in the early days when on my road to recovery, as it were, I felt much stronger. I remember I made that sort of flippant comment, you know, last night a DJ saved my life and last night my podcast saved my life. But I do think that being able to speak to people who were very helpful and talked about failure in a very candid way was really helpful for me. But I think the themes that come through again and again, whether it's speaking to someone like Wim Hof or whether it's speaking to someone like Nicola Perra, Dr. Nicola Perra, the holistic psychologist, or Dr. Ramanita Vazula, who's the expert in narcissism, is slow down. That's the thing. Every time I am about to act and I haven't just taken a minute to think about it, I'm going to do something that I will regret or that maybe will involve a little bit of navigating the, the fallout from. Every, every single guest at some point will communicate taking a step back, whether it's in business, whether it's in having a difficult conversation, whether it's in meditation, like when Andy Podicum came on the show, for example, from Headspace. And so for me, that advice of slow it down, we live in such a quick scrolling culture of act now and pay later, as it were. And I think the thing I've taken most from everybody across the board, I think, is just take a step back, figure out how you feel about it. Mm. and taking a little bit of time how many times have you got a text message and you've responded immediately and then you thought a while later you get a similar text message say it's a work thing or an email and then the next time you think actually last time I reacted really quickly to that and it was a bit of a, a, bit of a mess so I'm just going to leave it until tomorrow morning how many times have you done that and you thought the response I sent when I gave when I slept on it or when I'd didn't respond quickly was so much better and served me meant that I had much less stress so that's definitely something that's come through a lot and I just think the other one is and this is something I try to live every day is again just ask be okay with who you are Mm. don't worry about what other people think and that can be so challenging and so difficult but if I can go to sleep and I think I kept my side of the street clean then I guess I'm okay. I I accidentally upset somebody on social media recently and I looked at it and I thought, oh, I could see how they could have misinterpreted that. So I sent an apology. It was not received well, but I went to bed thinking I kept my side of the street clean. I could see how it could have been misinterpreted. I can do nothing with their interpretation if that's what they want to run with, but I have apologised for the fact that I didn't communicate clearly. So I just think, yeah, just be cool with who you are and know what you stand for. Because I remember somebody saying to me, if you don't stand for anything, you'll fall for everything. Mm. If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for everything. And I really, that's something that's really stuck with me. Yeah, I like that. It's the idea of understanding your own personal values and the decisions that you make each day. If you can recall that, there's something I tell my patients to do. You know what? That is something I say every morning 
the three things that guide you through your life, whatever they might be, it could be something like family, or it could be a particular value like honesty, or it could be uh, trust or curiosity or integrity or fun or whatever it is that actually lights you up and makes you feel consistent with who you are. Just three things. Mm -hmm. Thinking of those things, first thing as you wake up, allows you then to make decisions throughout the day that will remind you, that will bring you back to those three things that are really consistent with who you are. And then it makes life a lot easier. It makes decision-making a lot easier. It makes interacting with other humans a lot easier because you can feel as though at least you're being consistent with what's important to you. Totally. And I think one of the things that I've uh, talked about on the podcast a lot is, and a lot of people ask me about it, is my weight loss. Because a couple of years ago, I dropped 30 pounds and a lot of people message me every day asking how I did it. And I've been really candid on Instagram and on the podcast about why I did it and how I did it. And it wasn't a diet. It really came because I think they can be blunt instruments if you have an emotional issue when it comes to why you might be eating a certain way, which was definitely my issue. Not going to be the case for everybody. But what I try to say to people is it's not a diet. It's just every day I have a goal. And my goal is that I want to feel as healthy as possible. And I make decisions that will get me closer to that. Mm. It's as simple as that. So whenever I'm faced with a choice or I think, oh, I want to do that, or I want to do the other, I think, well, will this get me closer to my goal? Mm. And if it's not going to, then it's kind of easy. But I think it's that knowing yourself and knowing what your goal is and knowing how much you really want it and why you want it, as you say, makes decision making a lot easier. Do you think that when you lost the weight, your goal was to lose weight or was there another goal in mind as well? Oh, that's an excellent question. You're so good at this. Um, I think there was a part of it that was about the number on the scale and about the clothes size, definitely. The bigger thing for me was I felt very uncomfortable in my own skin. I felt very, very aware that I was wearing the sins of my unhealthy relationship with food. Mm. And, it, and I felt embarrassed by that because I had this very private battle with food. So often when I was out with people, I wouldn't eat anything or I would, oh, I'm just having a starter for dinner tonight. No, you go ahead, you go ahead. But privately, obviously, that wasn't the case. And I was in denial about that for a very, very long time. But when you're acting one way in public, but people can see, and I, I we could get into very torrid territory here talking about calories in, calories out, but... I do like science and that really worked for me in terms of helping me make my the changes that helped me but yeah a lot of it was about I was fighting myself and I wanted to stop that because that takes up so much emotional and mental space mm. to have a fight with yourself every day to to really want something really really want it to wake up thinking I really really want to lose weight I hate looking like this I hate feeling like this and yet your actions don't match your desires. There's a massive, massive disconnect. So yes, it was about that. But I think I basically won a battle with my inner saboteur. Yeah, it was about reconnecting with who you are and who you wanted to be and aligning your actions and your intentions. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, that's really powerful. And I, I keep thinking back on all the ways in which that can influence everyone in, in their lives. And for someone like yourself who has worked for years in beauty, I guess, you know, it's the exterior and 
other people's opinions has been quite integral to that industry. It has to be. And then to be able to, to be able to take a step back, as you have said, was one of the main things you learned from your podcast guests, take a step back, but also take a step within Mm -hmm. to be able to actually understand yourself better and make the decisions each day that will align with who you really are. Oh, that's very powerful, Emma. Very powerful. Thank (laughs) you for sharing that. I think, I think with, with the podcasts, with the day-to-day things that you're doing now, I guess there are certain habits that you now have that you didn't used to have that serve you better as a person. Is there anything that you could share with our listeners that is personal to you? Obviously, it may not apply to everyone, but something that in your journey you found really useful, sort of simple things, feel good things that you do regularly that help you keep on track. Oh, absolutely. I would love to. So the first one is I like to exercise every day, but I want to caveat that and say this does not mean that I am hammering the gym or going hard or going home, as it were. The step that we talked about, about just checking in with yourself, I wake up in the morning and I just have a a quick scan. I think, what do I need today? Is it yoga? Is it a walk outside? is it exercise in the terms of like in my living room I've got dumbbells and kettlebells and I've got the Jillian Michaels app and I go for half an hour and it's amazing and I love it um most days it's that because I really like waking up getting moving straight away and doing something and feeling feeling strong and I think making that connection that we talked about like I for the first time I've always exercised but I never saw results but my exercise was great and I was putting in the effort but then I was perhaps um sabotaging it by not eating appropriately whereas now when I work out I like seeing muscle definition pop out and things like that I I find really pleasing but there will be some mornings when I think I didn't sleep very well. I'm very stressed. I've got a lot of work on. What do I really need? And I will go out for an hour. <laughs> it sounds really lame. But I will go out and walk in the park and I'll just go and go right oak tree, silver birch, sycamore. And I'll just walk along, just identifying the trees, just to disconnect. Still exercise. That sounds completely <laughs> rational to me. That's, com- that's exactly the kind of thing I would do, Emma. Don't you worry. <laughs> Well, no, I say it sometimes nervously thinking, oh my goodness, but essentially just in a way to disconnect. Like I I think walking is incredible exercise. I think getting fresh air is vitally important. I also think getting lux, getting the um, sunlight is really important, obviously where your SPF, but um, that can just be just as invigorating and just as one exercise is not better than the other is what I'm trying to say Mm. so exercise some form of exercise is vital to me but I like to wake up and move another thing is music I am constantly listening to music and I really enjoy the music that I grew up listening to. So if I'm working in the office, it will be Guns N' Roses. It will be the Black Rose. It will be Aerosmith. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm still a 15 year old girl who wants to go on tour with Aerosmith. That will always be who I am at some part of my core. But yeah, I, I really love music. And before podcasts, I'll often put on like a power track. So a little while ago, I was interviewing Dr. Jen Gunter, who's been on the podcast a couple of times. And before I thought, okay, right. And because of the time difference, it was really late and I needed a bit of geeing up and I didn't want to have any coffee. So I thought, oh, I'll listen to a bit of Motley Crue. And so when we got on the call, I was a little bit out of breath. She's like, you okay? 
And I said, I know you're going to get this, but I've just been listening to Motley Crue kickstart my heart. And she's just like, I get it. Don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> and I just really appreciate that I have guests who now understand that. So music is really important. And then one of my other things that I really enjoy doing is listening to autobiographies because I'm in a really wonderful position with the podcast where I get to listen to other people's stories. I get to listen to their lives and their experience and their expertise. And I adore that. But Gemma, genuinely, I love putting my audiobook on and going for a walk, not even thinking about the trees at this point. And I just love seeing the world through someone else's eyes. Mm. I find, as much as we've talked about connecting with yourself, I think another part of um, being a good person is trying to understand others. And I recently listened to uh, Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights, which is incredible. Seeing the world through his eyes was a trip. Wow. I listened to Corey Feldman's book, and he's a great mimic, and he tells it brilliantly. And, and seeing the world through his eyes is really enlightening. I really find that something that allows me a fresh perspective and I adore doing that. So I think those are my things. And breath work is another thing I've wanged on about for hours on the podcast. But I think just taking a few minutes in the morning, in the afternoon, just before you go to bed, just to do a bit of breath work, slows everything down and just makes everything feel a bit better. I love that. This is Emma Gunn's <laughs> ABCs of life. So A is autobiographies, <laughs> B is breath work and C is connection. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yeah, your ABCs and then you've got your movement and your music, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. I think music is so powerful. I was thinking about my favorite tracks and the things that inspire me, things that make me cry, things that help me relax. It's really so special that we live in a time where we can listen to anything we want, anytime. How amazing mm. is that, that we can do that? I know, I know. <sighs> right. Okay. Well, I think we're going to have to draw this to a reluctant close. <laughs> I have. I'll WhatsApp you immediately yeah. to continue. <laughs> to be continued. <laughs> Honestly, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. I feel as though hearing your perspectives has been so valuable, not just about beauty, but about life and about connecting with other people, learning how to connect yourself. And it's a journey that we're all taking throughout our lives and that we continue um, every day. And so I do encourage everybody that's listening to this podcast, to please check out Emma Guns, the Emma Guns show. And uh, I look forward to hearing your feedback, um, hopefully about this podcast, but also about Emma's because she's doing such incredible things in this world. So thank you so very much for joining me today, Emma. Oh, thank you, Gemma. It's always a pleasure to chat to you. And how, how bizarre that it was the questions coming from you this time. I know. But it's so amazing. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Good. I'm glad you liked it. Let's hope our listeners feel the same way. I'm sure they will. Wow. Wasn't that a powerful conversation? Thank you so much for joining me today on The Wellness Edit. I really hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. Join me again next week for our next episode when we'll be talking to another great guest about how to fit wellness into your day. And remember, you can find all the episodes of The Wellness Edit on your favourite podcast platform and via the Holland and Barrett website at hollandandbarrett.com. If you've enjoyed any of the episodes, please do think to give us a review. It would be really appreciated and it will hopefully help other people find the podcast. Thank you so much. <laughs>